The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, July 6th, 2022, from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Hi, Mars. Hi, Mars. Such a friendly name, such a deadly weapon system. The M142 High Mobility Artillery Rocket System. Every one of those words, more deadly than the next commonly known as HIMARS, is being shipped to the Ukrainians. These are rockets, or a system really, that can program rockets, shoot them fast, run off in a different direction before they can be shot at. They cost $155,000 a rocket. They go 50 miles, which is way past what the Russians can go. And they are, as they say, a game changer. I don't know if there will be enough of them, but right now, these systems in the hands of the Ukrainians are doing a lot to destroy Russian artillery, to pushing the Russian lines back, to destroying Russian ammo depots, which is really, really a smart use of them because kablooey, they cause more damage when you hit enemy weapons. Not only do you take out the weapons, you use their weapons to take out the enemy. Just every rocket for $155,000 that takes out one tank, I support. I'm not usually the biggest fan of military spending. I don't know exactly how much is wasted. Seems like a great deal. You can very much convince me that we could cut a third of Pentagon spending and still have a great deterrence force. But once there is an act of war and you could throw $155,000 down on a rocket and you know that rocket at worst will take out a tank, that is an excellent example of harm reduction. There was once a tank, now there's not a tank. You know, personally, I favor the zero vision policy when it comes for tanks. I dream of a tankless society, though a thankless job, high Mars are doing it. Then I compare it to the United States and granted, and thank God, we don't have uh, as apparent or obvious a problem as a Russian tank rolling through our cities, but we do have problems. And I'm not sure the money that we're spending in harm reduction is going nearly as far as the HIMAR rocket system. Probably not a fair comparison. But over in Los Angeles, murders, sexual assaults, attacks are besetting the mass transit system. A couple months ago, uh, this is from the LA Times, a woman who appeared to be homeless set a 70-year-old Metro Rail passenger on fire in an unprovoked attack. The unidentified woman had said something to the passenger. He ignored it. She then squirted the man with a flammable liquid and set him on fire with a lighter. That's a one-off, but this is going on all over the place. They reported on Union Station, biggest rail station west of the Mississippi. 19 of the 21 janitors there report being threatened or assaulted by homeless or mentally ill or both people in the station. There was a 70-year-old woman, an emergency room nurse, who was attacked by a mentally ill person there. She fell, hit her head. She died. The story in the LA Times starts with oh, just a charming anecdote of uh, two of the workers who go in pairs because they're so afraid of being set upon, and they were by a woman with a mallet. So what is LA doing? The $122 million pilot program approved by Metro's executive board will place 300 uniformed workers on trains and buses with the aim, this is the LA Times words, the aim of making riders feel safe. If I were constructing the program, my aim would be 
to make the riders safe, but I guess the feeling is a step in the right direction. Here's how they describe the ambassador's job. They will help with directions. That's good. Not exactly safety, but logistics. They will alert police of a threat. So in other words, get the people who actually can ensure safety, hypothetically, ideally, point people to homeless services. Again, get the actual experts who are good at the job. Keep an eye on vulnerable people. And what then? I suppose we go back to maybe alerting homeless services or the police. Check that seats are clean. And if they're not, it doesn't say if they will clean them. And passengers are safe. But again, going back to the alerting police when they're not safe and the aim of making riders feel safe, it seems like these 300 uniform workers, these ambassadors, their job, we're hiring a bunch of people and it's going to be great because if there's a problem, these people will be able to contact the people who can actually solve the problem. So why not just get the people who can solve the problem? No, 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 no. We're going to get these ambassadors and they won't have the downside of having you know, actual guns that can maybe threaten someone who's trying to light someone on fire. They will perhaps give the arsonist a stern talking to. The article was framed uh, in the context of sexual harassment. Certainly, if an ambassador is on your car of light rail, I would think that a potential harasser would not engage in harassment on a car that an ambassador is stationed on. I can't tell you what the potential harasser would do next with interconnected cars on a railway system. Look, I'm being overly cynical. I say, give it a try. And LA is actually kind of flush with money now. So maybe try a $122 million program, by the way, divided by 300 uniformed officers. That is $400,000 per officer. But yeah, I mean, come on, you, you got to buy the walkie talkies. And I think that maybe the funding's over many years and the officers pay. I, I only gave you uh, the indication of what it'd be per year. I do have to say, though, I think about money a lot. When I think about the $155,000 that you spend on a rocket, it is engaged in a lot more efficient harm reduction, taking the tank out of play. Uh, now, the rocket can't give directions. The rocket won't be able to call a cop if they see an ammo depot that needs exploding. The rocket will just be able to explode the ammo depot. I don't think I'm actually getting conservative in my old age. I think I'm trying to um, militate, creeping cynicism. It's very hard. The problems of our cities are in fact very hard. And in a way, the problem of a tank or enemy artillery, uh, they're very deadly, but also because they are so deadly, it's kind of easy. A mentally ill homeless person cannot and should not be treated like a tank. And yet at the same time, there is a clarity in a well-aimed rocket. Maybe to assuage all of us, we can have the HIMARS system and rename them the Ambassador Rockets. On the show today, in the spiel, you might call it a sticky situation if you don't want people to like or respect you. But first, Sarah Longwell is back. Don't worry, we did not make her trudge over to Peachfish Studios on successive days. Little behind-the-scenes magic, we tape once, cut twice. But the publisher of The Bulwark and host of The Focus Group with Sarah Longwell is here to talk about voters. If they're not already appalled by Republican Party involvement in January 6th, might the hearings eventually turn them off? We'll also talk about the art of the focus group itself. Sarah Longwell up next.
This is Jess Betancourt, the host of DNA ID, the only true crime podcast that exclusively covers cases solved using forensic genealogy. DNA ID goes behind the headlines to answer your questions about this remarkable new crime-solving tool, how it works, how cases are selected, why the cases were unsolved for so long, and how the justice system is addressing it. I include input from law enforcement to give you the inside scoop that we all crave with a straightforward, no-nonsense delivery. You can find DNA ID on any podcast platform. Episodes come out weekly on Mondays. Before Sarah Longwell was the publisher of The Bulwark, she was a Republican consultant and advisor who tried to help Republicans win elections and also help Republicans understand and support her biggest issues, which included gay rights. She was the first female head of the log cabin Republicans. To advance these goals, she utilized focus groups. So I began this part of the interview by stepping back and asking her more broadly about what we could get out of a focus group. Sometimes focus groups can test messages. They can find out what's on voters' minds more deeply than a poll. They can maybe uncover misperceptions. So that was my first question to Sarah. How do you use focus groups to get something meaty and tangible that you could work with? Yeah, great. Thank you for asking this question. I love this question. I never get asked it. Um, So the reason that I started the focus groups was I'm a Republican, lifelong Republican who saw Trump get elected and went, what is going on? Like, I have been spending too much time in think tanks. I have no idea what voters are thinking. And I wanted to understand, like, what it was that was driving the impulse towards Trump. And um, and and the other thing was that I I believed as a Beltway Republican I'm like well we can primary this guy you know this was an accident of history it's because of that crowded field and Trump was all alone is burning yeah, all down lane right. getting a plurality so I was like I got to figure out where Republican voters heads are <laughs> then I started talking to them and I was like oh okay well I see a couple things very clearly one is that um, it was a it, negative polarization is the dominant theme here where they say I didn't vote for Trump I voted against Hillary Clinton um, and and so. So um, and then I all but I also, you know, they liked the fact that he was an outsider, a businessman. I, I was reminded of something I had not had not occurred to me, which was how many people felt like they knew Donald Trump because of his television show, which right. is a thing I never watched, but they did. Um, and then the other thing is I got very addicted to the focus groups because um, the what I was learning and what I was seeing was giving me. I thought just a better understanding of people and where the party was going, because not only did I think I think Donald Trump was a bit of an accident of history, but there's a, a Russian expression. The appetite increases while you're eating. And so because I kept doing the groups, I also I watched him change the party. Like I watched people change. And what they did is that they now crave his particular combative style of politics. Um, and, and that's one thing. But then going into 2020. So so first I wanted to primary him uh, and then. Um, and, I, and I wanted to understand the party, but then I wanted to know how to beat him. So I was going into 2020 thinking, how do you peel off uh, soft Trump supporters? And I started out, we had this group Republicans for the rule of law really around the Mueller investigation. We were running a, t- a bunch of ads that I would say were just like Lincoln project in the way that they're doing, right? They're just hammering yeah. Trump, hammering Trump. But your corporate and, governance was more legitimate, but go on. Yes, yeah, so that's right. But they're not, <laughs> but it was like the hammering Trump. Right. And, and, um, and what we were focus grouping the messaging. So we were like showing people the ads and they hated them. The swing voters hated them because they just felt like, oh, this is just people trying to get Trump and da, 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 da. And we were like, OK, this isn't working. Um, and it's great resistance stuff. It's great for Twitter. They would all go viral on Twitter, but they did not move swing voters. And so then we started experimenting with I, I have one sort of key philosophy around communications, which is that um, the messenger is more important than the message. The messenger is the most important thing. And 
the never Trumpers were not credible messengers. And we just had to like deal with that. And so we went and found real people. We built an enormous list of disaffected Republicans and we let them tell their stories. Real people in these states who said, you know, I've been a Republican my whole life, but I am not voting for Trump in 2020 for X, Y, Z reason. Um, and some of them were going to ditch out their votes. Some of them were going to vote for Joe Biden. But we got thousands of people to send us video testimonials that were sh like shitty in quality. Right. <laughs> and the more crappy they were, the more legitimate they were. And so we were tested. The more people took them seriously. And so we built our entire, you know, 40 million dollar advertising persuasion campaign around real people and real voices and the focus groups really helped us crystallize yeah. what it was that moved people. Because I'll tell you, it's funny things like the more Republican they looked like the more they had like a mustache or like a Southern accent or talked about their faith. Those were the things that moved people the most. And the other thing that we found out. Can I interrupt? Uh, did you find that when they testified on on portrait view instead of landscape view, it was more authentic because <laughs> that doesn't <laughs> that's not what you're supposed to do? Uh, well, it was it was funny. It was actually like like we had one that was like super grainy and a guy was sitting on like bleachers and he wasn't wearing a shirt. And he was just talking about how he voted for Trump in 16 and he was sorry about it. And he was going to vote for a tomato. He'd rather vote for a tomato can in 20. And like this thing, this did go viral, but it also had tremendous power as persuasion because it's just some dude yeah. like opining on why he was sorry about his decision. Um, and, and it was like very dark and grainy and it crushed. So a poll might have showed that Donald Trump had very high name recognition. OK, but the focus group showed you that it's not just name recognition. It's how familiar they were or thought they were with him. It can flesh out a finding like this in a way that makes you understand things better. Are there others that you can point to other findings uh, where it either goes deeper into what a poll would tell you or maybe even contradicts or clarifies what a poll is saying? Yeah. So let me give you one from right now. So there's a big dominant narrative out there where everybody is like counting Trump's endorsement wins and losses, and they're using it as this metric for is Trump losing his grip on the Republican Party? And I think that whole phenomenon is stupid um, yes. because what you learn in these focus groups is that I have been so I've ever since January 6th, the actual event, um, I've been doing dozens and dozens and dozens of these focus voters. And I always ask, do you want to see Trump run again in 2024? Always about half the group says yes. Um, and so you might say like, OK, well, that's only 50 percent of the party that's supporting Trump. And that's consistent with the polling. Yeah. But what you find is that the other half, it's not that they don't like Trump. They're not saying, oh, uh, yeah, Trump sucks and I don't want it. They're saying, no, I, I love Trump. Trump is great. He did a great job. He was a great president. Um, but I just I'm not sure he can win or I think he has too much baggage. And then they'll talk about all the other people that they're excited about, like Ron DeSantis. And, and so when people say, well, Trump's losing his grip on the party, I'm like, actually, no, Trump has transformed the party. He has created a, a appetite for combative uh, style of politics. And Ron DeSantis is Trump without the baggage. And so like the idea that Trump is, is not losing his grip, like he might not be, he might be starting to slide as like the candidate that people mm -hmm. is their first choice in 24. But his Trumpism as a style and as a way of politics is still dominant. It is the force that overhangs the entire party. It is what the voters want. I mean, they I mean, I ask. So you'll ask, like, well, what do you think about Mitt Romney? And they'll be like, hate him, hate him all. They all voted for him, you know, not that long ago, but they they think he's terrible. And so you can get a lot of texture, not just about like horse race, but who is the party? Like, what is it that the that people want? And and I think like Ron DeSantis is paying close attention. They want they want the Trumpiness. 
They may not, yeah. they may, and still a lot of them want Trump, by the way. Yeah, it's it's that even his losses in the ridiculous counting of wins and losses, which I agree doesn't make much sense because there are different thresholds to what an endorsement means, right? Sometimes he just tacks on, oh yeah, that's my girl after uh, uh, after someone shows some viability, whereas original candidate doesn't. Yeah, Katie Britt, perfect example. Right, yeah, Mo Brooks. But even the losers he transformed into Trump. It's like, if you bear with me, I don't know where you are with sports. Sometimes the Golden State Warriors did not win the NBA Finals, but everyone played in a style of the Golden State Warriors. So even when they lost, the Golden State Warriors style was winning in basketball everywhere. Anyway, um, I did want to ask you about the hearings and the impact. And I will say, well, I think they are having an impact. And the proof of that is that I'm asking you about them. When I originally booked the interview, I said, well, we won't even have to get to the hearings. They're not going to have an impact. But lo and behold, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring them up uh, to ask you what you're finding. Yeah. So um, first of all, yes, agree with you that uh, they matter, that they're having an impact. Um, you know, I was just doing this week, I did a group of Trump Mandel voters in Ohio. And one of the things that I was very surprised about was how uh, it was like five out of nine of them, five out of nine of them had watched some of the hearings. And and yeah. and, and that is increasing from where it was because we've been doing this now the whole throughout the hearings. In the beginning, um, they were aware of the hearings, which to me was actually also a finding. Like, I can't tell you how often I go into groups like when Kevin McCarthy's tapes leaked and we were all freaking out about him and talking about him in D.C., went into a focus group the next day. What do you think about this? And they all just like stared at me. They're like, I don't know what you're talking about. And and so like and that is that is the other thing, man, talk about a thing I learned in focus groups is how many things don't break through. Yeah. And I also I, I focused group through two impeachments. So I have seen uh, how people react to this stuff. And this is different. And the reason it's different is because it's a bunch of Trump people. And it's and I'm not saying that the Trump folks are, or that they, these Trump voters are watching the hearings and becoming persuaded by them because they're not. They think they're stupid. They think they're, you know, these are just people trying to get Trump. Liz Cheney is a rhino, uh, you know, lies, 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 partisan, partisan, partisan. And yet, as the hearings are going on, what I hear in the focus groups more and more is, you know, I want to move on from the January 6th conversation. And they also, it is changing people's, one of the things about voters is funny. They're like armchair uh, political strategists. And so they talk a lot about like they don't think Trump can win. And that chatter has just really been increasing um, where the like the guy's got a lot of baggage. He's a lot to defend. Um, I like Trump, but like I can't take any more of the orange man. Bad stuff. I want to move on from this conversation. Let's talk about DeSantis. Let's talk about inflation. Let's talk about how dumb Biden is. The other thing that's coming through um, that I think that the hearings have 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 created in an environment is. People are getting pretty bored with Trump's 2020 shtick. Yes. Like there's a bunch of things they want to talk about. They want to talk about like if, if Trump was out there talking about how senile Biden was, they would like that better um, mm -hmm. than Trump's litigation of 2020. Because even though they're yes. like, yeah, something fishy happened, they're also just bored with it. So um, when you're conducting a focus group and I heard this a couple times and someone asserts something that's untrue. Like, I think they were talking about the uh, coordinator of the hearings as the guy at ABC who suppressed the Epstein tapes. <laughs> I mean, that's of questionable veracity. <laughs> what do you do so that that doesn't, do you do anything? What if that, what if a misconception takes hold? Absolutely no. not. I don't do anything. I don't, I don't mean to correct them, but like, what if it infects the focus group, that statement? 
Yeah, well, this is the thing about focus groups, actually, which is that you can't isolate, right? They 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 act as an organism once they're in the group, especially when you tell them, like the women do this, you see them kind of develop a solidarity among each other. Oh, uh, when you're doing Trump voters and they all know they're Trump voters, they laugh with each other. They say, let's go, Brandon. They have like in-group jokes and they immediately form certain solidarity. You can't stop that. And that's okay because to me, that mimics the way things work in the real world. And so you do get people from time, you're like, oh my God, we've got somebody who's totally dominating the group. You know, they're like, taking over and they're stomping on other people. And sometimes you like open the fake trap door uh, and you just drop them off the zoom. Um, Cause you're like, this person, <laughs> this person is completely toxifying this group. Um, and it's a thing that I do from time to time. Connectivity um, issues. <laughs> so um, another question I had is you have a bunch of different types of focus groups. You have Trump to Biden voters. You had actually Hillary to Trump voters. That's an odd one. You had the flip floppers. You had the, I think you have some never Trumpers. Are there, you have Democrats and Republicans, are there habits, are there, I don't know, stereotypes, but maybe they run counter to what you thought going in of how, a, how say, the, the never-Trumpers will act with each other or words or phrases they use, how the strongest pro-Trump people will act with each other, some generalities that you have seen time and time again that are interesting. Oh, yeah, there's lots and lots of interesting stuff. Um, I mean, first of all, um, what was that old book? Men are from Mars, women are from Venus. Like Republicans Correct. are from Mars, Democrats are from Venus. Like there is an opening. There's just like a chasm of difference in the way that they um, relate to each other. Democrats are so much gentler. <laughs> They're so much gentler with each other and very, you know, cautious. Um, and they tend to not sort of, they they neither form the same group solidarity, nor do they argue with each other the way that the Trump voters do. The Trump voters will like really engage with each other, but they also they all view themselves as on one side. And here's another thing I'll say that I actually think is really important. Um, and I never quite know how to say it because I don't want it to sound exactly mean, but like the Republicans hate the Democrats so much, mm -hmm. like the vitriol with which they loathe what they see as the socialism. And they say that, you know, Biden is non compassmentism I mean, they just say, you know, senile, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and now part of it is we do a lot of swing states. So like if you're a Democrat in Pennsylvania, you know, lots and lots of Republicans, like they're in your family yeah. and whatever. There's so much more. Um, they don't hate them as much. Like, like I bet maybe if I did a California group of Democrats, which I don't do because I don't need to know what they think for my work, um, you might get more vitriol. Like, how stupid are these people? They're hicks. But like, that's not how Pennsylvania Democrats talk. They're much more like, look, I understand why they're upset about this or they feel this way. And so they're just like much more willing to put themselves uh, or like not discount the Republicans uh, in there and like be mad at them. Whereas the Republicans, just the hatred of Democrats is so severe. And it, it translates into a bit of an enthusiasm gap. Um, like it, actually this is, there's this great Simpsons bit where they have the two conventions and the Republicans are like, we hate Democrats is their banner. And the Democrats is we hate ourselves. Uh, <laughs> and that is in the groups where the Democrats are, the Democrats will spend their time criticizing the Democrats um, and the Republicans will spend all their time criticizing the Democrats. Do, are they nicer to each other within the groups? Are, are, do they use, would a Republican more likely to use f each other's first names? Would they wait and not interrupt uh, any, any habits like that? So I don't, can I just say, it's, first of all, everybody for the most part is kind of polite. 
you get some jerks. You, you do. But for the most part, I, I, sometimes I always wish I could have more people see this because it'll give you just a little bit more of like a we are the world I sense know. of things because you get these Trump voters and they'll say some things that you're like, whew, that is not true. That is bad. That is bad information. But then they're like, you, you ask, you start, you open the groups with kind of friendly, tell us a little bit about yourself, whatever. And it's all like, well, I volunteer at my local animal shelter and, you know, here my dogs are my best friends. And like, they're just, people are mostly sweet yeah. and they're mostly trying their best and they mostly operate off of the information that they have. Um, and I, I use it honestly for myself in a lot of ways as a good level set to not feel so dark. I mean, one of the, 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 the reputation I have is at least in the bulwark community is like, as the resident optimist. And part of that is I'm just not willing to write people off. Um, I continue to think that you can persuade people that we have a major information problem. Um, and that, uh, you know, the way that we talk about civil war and like, we should break up and whatever, like we're not most of like, they're still all sound like Americans. There's a lot of commonality, a lot of common ground. Um, and like, there's difference, like, like I said, the Mars Venus thing, like there's real cultural differences, but there's also like a lot of overlap. I sometimes, I mean, I constantly affirm that sentiment by thinking about interactions in the real world. And I know your focus groups are over Zoom, but at least it's seeing people's faces. Um, and then I wonder, but is the real world really real? Aren't we spending most of our time and certainly most of our political time not in those kind of interactions? If you did a focus group on Slack, you'd get a very different dynamic. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, they are seeing each other's face. Like, but this is one of the things people say actually in the focus groups all the time is they're like, you know, when I'm online, everyone's so mad at each other and they say everything's terrible, but then I go outside and everyone's nice to each other and everything's fine. And there is this, yeah. it like, it's so obvious that, Part of like national healing would be that if everyone put down their phones and like went and played like a game of volleyball together or something, um, because people want to be nice and they want to meet people where they are and be decent. And the fact that we just self-segregate more and more and we're online where people can just get to their most toxic selves and to have political leaders. I always say this, that that people kind of have light and dark inside of them, like they have an angel and a devil on their shoulder. And when you have leaders who are like, give me the devil, give me the devil. I'm going to feed the devil all day long. Like it creates a terrible environment, but like you put them in a group together and everyone's pretty like amiable. And, you know, they just got back from taking their mother to the doctor. And, you know, I, I just, everyone should go outside and take a deep breath. Uh, you can see it. Yeah. And volleyball might be the ideal activity because though there is teamwork involved, the two sides are separated and cannot touch by rule. <laughs> Sarah Longwell is the publisher of The Bulwark. Her podcast is The Focus Group. I commend you to that excellent production. Sarah, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. This is fun. And now the spiel. Climate activists glue themselves to Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper for protest, government has become climate Judas. The article in Mediaite, not media good or great, just Mediaite, Mediaite, climate activists are continuing their recent trend of demonstrators gluing their hands to major pieces of art in an effort to stop fossil fuel projects. Lucy Porter, Jessica Agar, Tristan Strange, all identified in a press release put out by Just Stop Oil. Ah, 
<laughs> a position as nuanced as their means to achieve it, just stop oil, they glued themselves to Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper this week after spray painting on the wall of London's Royal Academy, no new oil. Luckily for them, oil is tens of millions of years old, sometimes over 100 million years old. In comments in front of onlookers and cameras, Strange said any new, quote, oil expansion is a, quote, death sentence for, quote, younger generations, as his hand was glued to the Da Vinci painting. Yes, that certainly underlines the point. I know I've not been taken seriously all my life because I've not been glued to any of the works of the old masters at the time I was making my arguments. Maybe people testifying before Congress will follow suit. The general warned of dangerously low levels of troop readiness as he was strapped to the paw of a baby Kodiak bear. May I ask a question respectfully? What the hell is going on? It's not like there is any correlation between oil paintings and oil. Oh, there it is. Well, it all makes sense now. Going to have to glue yourself to works of art to stop profit-seeking corporation from filling the tanks of the modes of transport necessary for almost every person on the planet. I don't know. I still think the connection between a painting and attacking a painting and trying to save the environment is Almost in the realm of one of those hypotheticals, you know, like my kids and I always play. Okay, okay. You get a million dollars every year of your life, but every time you hear the theme song to Who's the Boss, you vomit uncontrollably. Huh? Do you take it? Huh? These glue users, or gluesers, are everywhere, not just the Royal Academy. One tried to glue herself onto the court of an NBA game, TNT sideline reporter Ali LaForce with details. I was just told by security that she apparently had glue and she glued herself to the floor and she refused to lift her wrist up. And I don't mean to laugh, but this really happened. She glued her wrist to the floor and they were trying to pull her off and she was resisting trying to keep her wrist glued down. It, to the was, it was a protest of some sort, I'm assuming. It was because the owner of the Minnesota Timberwolves is somehow involved in the chicken trade. He had an inferior method of executing chickens, apparently. I don't know. I don't know the details. The message, like the glue, did not stick. There are other art happenings in Europe. Coordinated attacks. We used to think the craziest thing about uh, Vincent van Gogh uh, was, of course, that he ripped off one of his ears. Well, now the crazy has been upped by climate protesters. Roll the tape. They decided to stick their hands to one of his great works. Sky News there being insensitive and inaccurate, the craziest, craziest thing about Van Gogh is not what climate activists did to peach trees in blossom, one of his paintings. It was that he had manic depression and the glusers have an overindulged sense of the dramatic. I say you get the Vincent Van Gloof, Gloof guy, you get the uh, Minnesota Timber Glue gal, you get the Last Supper glueies. You get them all together. Maybe, why not include the guy who disrupted the Nathan's hot dog eating contest to protest hot dogs, you know, just hot dogs in general and where they come from. And as punishment, you glue them all together. You have them hash out their differences. Will this cause a rift? Will this cause infighting? Might this draw them closer together? Like Egyptian prisons did to the Muslim Brotherhood. They might forge a tighter bond. They might become more militant, form the Islamic jihadhisive. I'm willing to find out. I will take that risk. Also, somewhat annoying, is this. To go back to the original story, none of the details, as reported, were close to accurate. What I read to you from Mediaite, gluing hands to a Da Vinci 
in the Royal Academy. Wait, The Last Supper isn't a painting in the Royal Academy. It's a mural in Milan. This painting was done by a disciple of da Vinci 15 or 20 years after The Last Supper. So I guess it was like the last dessert, the last postprandial constitutional. Still, it is a valuable 500-year-old painting. But also, the protesters didn't glue themselves to the painting. They glued themselves to the frame of the painting that wasn't even The Last Supper. It was framed as a gluing to a painting. It should have been painted as a gluing to a frame. It just goes to show there is no problem so big that we can't invent a solution so stupid as to embarrass everyone involved. And for further updates and all your accurate up-to-the-minute news you could use about uses of glues, keep it glued right here. That's it for today's show. Corey Warra once zip-tied himself to the main marionette in a puppet show that taught kids valuable lessons about teamwork. The resulting song, I'll Carry Corey, was incorporated into all future productions. Joel Patterson, just senior producer, once jumped atop a Macy's balloon to protest harmful representations of frogs in mass media. Michelle Pesca, CEO of Peachfish Productions, in college, changed herself to an animatronic backup banjo-playing bear inside a Chuck E. Cheese in an effort to raise awareness about a different, better-staffed Chuck E. Cheese. The gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast for advertising inquiries. Go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Jeeperoo, Dooperoo, and thanks for listening.